This is a special edition of the Sufi Reverberations podcast. Rather than presenting a story, poem, essay, and a musical interlude, the following program gives expression to one episode of a multi-part editorial entitled The Essence of the Problem That Lies Before Us. This commentary is a critical reflection on the nature of the problem which underlies the existential circumstances in which we are entangled. Since the times of Chief Justice John Marshall, members of the legal profession have deluded themselves and evangelically sought to infect outsiders with this same delusion, that the judiciary and the legal system are the best way of engaging the Constitution in order to ascertain its alleged meanings. And for a more in-depth exploration of these issues, please read my book, Beyond Democracy. Yet the American form of governance is also frequently described as consisting of three separate but equal branches of government, and thus the judicial delusion of interpretive supremacy concerning the meanings of the Constitution cannot answer in any non-arbitrary or non-partisan manner how there can be three separate but equal branches of government if one of those branches, namely the judiciary, gets to determine what the different branches can and cannot do. The many books of law, which are filled with case descriptions, proceedings, and judicial decisions establishing this or that precedent, are nothing more than ways of obfuscating the fact that there can only be one precedent in the American system of governance and that is the Constitution itself. Judicial systems of constitutional meaning are rooted in theories of hermeneutical valuation which are capable of generating precedents that are little more than arbitrary legal fictions concerning the possible meanings of the Constitution that serve to impose the jurist's understanding of human beings and their place in the scheme of things onto others. In other words, make laws and therefore establish the religious beliefs, whether secular or non-secular in nature, of the jurists or jurists who are issuing a judgment. The very act of making a judgment that is to be imposed on others is to be engaged in making laws that establish religion or prohibiting its free exercise thereof. This takes place in the form of a jurist's beliefs or set of jurist's beliefs about an understanding concerning the nature of the relationship between human beings and reality. There tends to be a fundamental disconnect between, on the one hand, the qualities that are necessary to give expression to a Republican form of government, that is, one, for example, which is unbiased, impartial, objective, compassionate, noble, fair, as well as unwilling to serve as a judge in its own causes and on the other hand, the qualities that are exhibited by most jurists. For example, one of the most fundamental values in the observance of republicanism indicates that one cannot serve as a judge in one's cause, and yet every exercise of judicial review, precedent, or decision is nothing less than a violation of the aforementioned republican principle, because the processes of exercising judicial review or issuing legal rulings or making precedents, are all instances in which jurists are serving as judges in their own cause. 
What is the cause which jurists are serving, but should not be serving, in their capacity as judges? Their cause is to serve as the primary arbiters of meaning with respect to the Constitution, despite the fact that the Constitution does not actually authorize jurists to serve as interpreters concerning the Constitution's meaning. Their cause is to interpret the power that is being granted to them by the Constitution for purposes of extending to and having jurisdiction in law in fact, in conjunction with various kinds of cases and controversies, as consisting of more power than it actually does. In fact, this is the mistake that John Marshall first made in Marbury v. Madison, in which he, his associates, and successors on the Supreme Court continue to make for more than 200 years. The courts, consisting of both the Supreme Court and whatever inferior courts are ordained by Congress from time to time, are being called upon by the Constitution to resolve various cases and controversies. This must be done in a manner that is consistent not only with, among other things, the unspecified rights and powers that are retained and reserved respectively by the people and the states under the Ninth and Tenth Amendments, but as well must be consistent with the guarantee of Republican government that is stated in Article 4, Section 4 of the Constitution. While processes of negotiation and mediation would be forms of judicial activity that, as noted earlier, are quite consonant with the Ninth and Tenth Amendments, as well as Article 4, Section 4 of the Constitution, nonetheless, undertaking judicial review as a process of hermeneutics that supposedly determines the meanings of the Constitution as a function of a jurist's understanding of the nature of the relation that that ties together one, individuals, two, the universe, and three, that which makes individuals, the universe, and such relationships possible, is to engage in making arbitrary laws that establish religion or prohibit its free exercise thereof. Just to identify a few problems that have been created by both the Congress and the judiciary in relation to a. the prohibition against making laws concerning the establishment of religion or its free exercise thereof, as well as violating the requirements of Article 4, Section 4 of the Constitution, or b. failing to properly acknowledge the rights and powers that have been retained or reserved by the people and the states under the Ninth and Tenth Amendments, respectively, one might consider the Federal Reserve Act of 1913, along with the National Security Act of 1947, together with its pathological spawn, the CIA. The National Defense Authorization Act of 1961, the War Powers Act or Resolution of 1973, the Children's Vaccine Injury Act of 1986, the Patriot Act of 2001 the Model State Emergency Health Powers Act of 2001, the PrEP Act of 2005, and the John Warner National Defense Authorization Act of 2007, to name but a very few. All constitute violations of one kind or another with respect to the prohibitions against making laws that establish religion, whether of a secular or non-secular nature, or which affect the free exercise thereof, 
and in addition, run contrary to requirements concerning the guarantee of Republican government that is given in Article 4, Section 4 of the Constitution, and, as well, problematically impinge on the rights and powers that have been retained and reserved, respectively, for the people and the states under the Ninth and Tenth Amendments. Capitalism, socialism, libertarianism, and communism all constitute attempts to establish religion or prohibit its free exercise thereof. The Democrat, Republican, and Green parties, to name just a few possibilities, also seek to lobby government officials to establish their respective forms of religion or prohibit the free exercise of other forms of religion, or they seek to induce government officials to act contrary to the requirements of Article 4, Section 4, with respect to the guarantee of a Republican form of government. When companies such as Google, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter censor people for violating community standards, those companies are operating out of a perspective that seeks to establish a framework that aspires to control how people think, feel, or act. And this is effectively religious in nature because it purports to put forth a theory concerning how people, the universe, and that which makes everything possible are related, and therefore how people should think, act, and conduct themselves. Consequently, since the FCC is a creation of Congress, and since the aforementioned companies are only permitted to do what they do as a result of laws that have been passed by Congress, and since the FCC as a legislatively enabled entity is by constitutional proxy, required under the First Amendment not to establish laws that would enable others, whether biological organisms or legal fictions, i.e. corporations, to establish policies and protocols that are effectively religious in nature and which are being imposed on other human beings, then neither Google, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, or other telecommunication companies are entitled to try to use their congressionally enabled platforms for purposes of establishing religion, whether of a secular or non-secular nature, that can be imposed on other people. In fact, since courts have been ordained and established through congressional legislation and therefore cannot engage in actions that establish religion or prohibit the free exercise thereof, and since the Supreme Court has not been given specific and clear-cut authority by the Constitution to extend its powers, or jurisdiction in law and fact to processes that are entangled in the dynamics of interpreting the meanings of the Constitution and thereby make laws which establish religion, whether of a secular or non-secular nature, or which prohibit its free exercise thereof, and because the Supreme Court has not been given authority to engage in processes such as constitutional interpretation, which also would require the Supreme Court to deviate from operating in accordance with the requirements of Article 4, Section 4, concerning the guarantee of Republican government. None of the aforementioned courts are entitled to create the legal fiction of corporations as artificial persons that are entitled to rights of one kind or another. This is because such legal fictions give expression to a theory about how individuals, the universe, and that which makes the universe possible relate to one another. And this is nothing other than a process of making laws establishing religion 
or which prohibit the free exercise thereof. Corporations are nothing more than a religious doctrine, whether of a secular or non-secular nature, that are camouflaged in the rituals and traditions of legal fictions generated by an arbitrary framework known as the rule of law, which seeks to impose its views of the nature of reality onto other people. Corporations are merely one more way in which government officials seek to make laws that effectively establish religion or prohibit the free exercise thereof, and in the process violate, among other things, the principles inherent in Article 4, Section 4 of the Constitution, as well as undermine the rights and powers that have been retained and reserved by the people, but which have not been retained or reserved for non-biological legal fictions that seek to deny or disparage the rights that are retained by human beings. When companies seek to obtain the assistance of the federal government to develop and deploy systems of artificial intelligence or arrays of robotic dynamics in order to serve corporate purposes, or when companies are enabled by the federal government to engage in the installation of electromagnetic systems on Earth or in space that will envelop human beings in radiation that can be demonstrated to be harmful, or when companies seek the support of the federal government in order to create and distribute GMOs that could carry problematic ramifications for human beings or other naturally occurring living organisms, or when companies seek to induce the government to pass laws that mandate vaccines or which indemnify the manufacturers and administrators of those vaccines, then such companies are engaging in a process of trying to establish a religion which seeks to impose on others the company's vision concerning the nature of the relationship among human beings, the universe, and that which makes such things possible. Since commerce is one of the powers that has been invested in the Congress, and since Congress, quote, may make no laws respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, end of quote, then Congress may make no laws involving commerce that would enable any of the participants in commerce corporate or otherwise, to use commercial activity as a means for establishing religion of either a secular or non-secular nature, and therefore a great deal of corporate commercial activity actually should be constrained by, among other constitutional provisions, the First Amendment prohibition concerning Congress's capacity to make laws that establish religion or prohibit its free exercise thereof. And this prohibition extends to all facets of legislation affecting commerce or any other kind of legislation that is issued by Congress affecting education, energy, affairs of state, housing, the environment, defense, labor, the interior, banking, finances, and so on, which is capable of impacting the lives of citizens in a manner in which the vision of one or more government officials concerning the nature of the relationship between human beings and reality is being imposed on the people and therefore constitutes a process of making laws to establish religion or prohibit its free exercise thereof. When presidents such as Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, Ford, Carter, Reagan, G.H.W. Bush, Clinton, G.W. Bush, Obama, Trump, or whomever else one wishes to consider, issue executive orders 
that seek to impose on citizens a given president's vision concerning the nature of the relationship between human beings and reality, then such government officials are seeking to establish a form of religion that is intended to be incumbent on everyone, and as a result, at a minimum, violates the requirements of Article 4, Section 4, in which a Republican form of government that has been guaranteed to each state by every member of the United States federal government, and in addition, seeks to deny and disparage the rights that have been retained by the people in the Ninth Amendment, or to ignore the powers that have been reserved to the states or the people under the Tenth Amendment. When the military lobbies Congress to declare war or sanction hostilities, in short of a declaration of war, Congress has no power to sanction hostilities, one must be certain, in accordance with Article 4, Section 4, that such lobbying is not a function of the beliefs of one or more members of the federal government concerning the nature of the relationship of human beings with reality, as opposed to a clearly delineated need to protect citizens against an imminent attack and for no other reason, and therefore does not give expression to the desire of government officials to have laws made that establish religion or which prohibit the free exercise thereof. A great deal of militarism is nothing more than religious doctrine of a secular or non-secular nature that masquerades in various forms of patriotism or alleged concerns about national defense or proclamations involving national interests, when in reality these sorts of activities are often only undertaken in order to protect and serve the wishes of various government officials, military or otherwise, who desire to impose their own mode of religious orientation concerning people, the universe, and that which makes both possible on to everyone else. To this point, there has been nothing said in the present commentary which explores whether or not the coup to which the Philadelphia Constitutional Convention of 1787 gave expression was legal, ethically valid, or even very republican in nature relative to the Articles of Confederation which the aforementioned convention sought to disestablish as the prevailing rule of law. Moreover, there is nothing to this point, which has been said in the present commentary, that explores whether the many Machiavellian tactics that were employed by factions favoring the idea of federalism against the people of New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, and elsewhere in the colonies might have cast more than a few fundamental doubts on the integrity and therefore validity of the results that were generated during the ratification conventions that occurred over a period of several years following the Philadelphia Convention. In addition, although the following issue has been alluded to during the present commentary, very little has been said at any point in the previous discussion about the vast conceptual area of the unexplored possibilities for establishing conditions of sovereignty that exist in relation to the unspecified nature of the rights that have been quote-unquote retained by the people, that is, which existed prior to any formal declaration by government in relation to the Ninth Amendment, and which also exists in conjunction with the unspecified nature of the powers 
that have been reserved to the states respectively or the people by the Tenth Amendment and which given expression to those powers that have, quote, not been delegated to the United States by the Constitution nor prohibited by it to the states, end of quote. States have had a 233-year history of presuming, rather unwarrantedly, that when it comes to the sort of unspecified reserved powers to which the Tenth Amendment alludes, states believe that they and not the people should have priority and preference with respect to claiming and activating such powers, perhaps even to the exclusion of, quote, the people, end of quote, for whom unspecified powers are also supposedly reserved in the Tenth Amendment. The Ninth Amendment is an acknowledgement of unspecified rights that belong to and have been retained by the people in the sense of their always having had such rights. And consequently, that amendment cannot be understood to constitute a process for denying and disparaging an array of unspecified rights in relation to the people. However, more often than not, states have tried to bully and intimidate, quote, the people, end of quote, in relation to the latter's attempt to realize their unspecified rights that have been acknowledged to exist under the Ninth Amendment, and among other tactics, the states have sought to harass the rights of the people by using the federal court system as a way of trying to deny and disparage the unspecified rights of the people that the latter have retained in and therefore possess independently of the Ninth Amendment. And unfortunately, more often than not, the federal court system, including the Supreme Court, has allowed itself to be used as a means of denying and disparaging the unspecified rights that have been retained under and therefore existed prior to the Ninth Amendment. And you should see my book, The People Amendments, for a more detailed discussion on these issues. Because such unspecified rights are as much a threat to the way of power in which the federal government is entrenched with respect to the people as those unspecified rights of the people are a threat to the desire of state governments to have hegemony over their citizens. The same set of problematic dynamics between state governments and the people that are being outlined with respect to the Ninth Amendment also exists within the fabric of the Tenth Amendment. What are the unspecified powers that are being reserved for the states, respectively, or the people? Is the word, quote, or, end of quote, intended to be an exclusive conjunction? And if so, then under what circumstances do the people get to exercise the powers that have been reserved for them under the Tenth Amendment? And what justifies such an arrangement? Alternatively, is the word, quote, or, end of quote, intended to be an inclusive term, and if this is the case, then how do states and the people work out the power-sharing arrangements that have been reserved for them? Finally, and perhaps most importantly, nothing has been said to this point in the present commentary about whether or not decisions that were made 233 years ago have any valid, binding, legal, or moral authority over subsequent generations. The possible meanings and nature of the Constitution is one thing, but whether or not people today have any obligation to abide by its conditions, as opposed to being forced to abide by it under threat of punishment or penalty of some kind, is an entirely 
different manner. Part 5 of The Essence of the Problem that Lies Before Us will be available for listening or downloading sometime within the next week, that is, at some point during the first week of September 2020. So please stay tuned. The past is just a memory, and the future is but a possibility. How imperceptibly the present fades into what will never be again as it becomes immersed in the mists of not-yet-realized possibilities. You are listening to the transitory, fleeting, perishable, fragment-filled remnants of the Sufi Reverberations podcast.